Good morning, Gateway. I bring with me greetings from my family and love uh, from them. I know they wish they could be here, uh, but Lord willing, this fall, we will come as a family. Uh, last time I was here was 2016. I was still single, and how things have changed. So I, I always brag to my wife about you guys, about your love, your hospitality, your faithfulness. And so she's very excited, anxious to come and meet you all. So I, I bring them, I bring with me their, their greetings to you. Um, and just a short testimony about uh, my experience in Shepherds. I also want to thank you, uh, Gateway, for allowing me to be here, for bringing me from Bolivia to be at Shepherds Conference. Uh, it was only two weeks before it started that I, I didn't think I was going to be able to come. And the Lord miraculously opened a slot uh, for me to be able to apply for my visa. I traveled in two days, got it, came back, got my ticket, and flew over here. So I uh, just want to thank you for your generosity. I really, really enjoyed not only uh, getting to know the, the men here at, at, at Gateway, and I just want to say something about them. Uh, you really do have elders and a pastor who, who love you, who are committed to knowing the Word of God and preaching it faithfully to you. And let me tell you, that's something that's very, very hard to find nowadays. So I uh, just wanted you to know that so you'd appreciate that. And I enjoyed the fellowship with the men, but I also enjoyed uh, the preaching. You know, we, we uh, have been learning in Bolivia with Pastor Rod coming about Simeon Trust, how we're supposed to be faithful expositors of the Word of God, not add, not take away, but preach the Word. And what I take away from all the time that we spent at Shepherd's Conference and Simon Trust is that the gospel is sufficient for all our needs. That's enough. Uh, the gospel is sufficient for all our needs. So um, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. I want to thank you for, for allowing me to be here. And with that, I would ask you, please, to turn into your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Verse, verses 9 through 21. And uh, this, this book of Romans is what I have been going on uh, studying through with our people in Bolivia at Maranatha Bible Church in, in Samaipata. And the title for today's message is Our Duty Towards Others. And we will look at what is our responsibility towards others, to our, our neighbor. And I want to start out with an illustration, the story. And I like to share it this way. Back in the first century after Christ, the, there was a group of professionals who would get up at theater, in the Greek theater, and they would, they would act. You know, they'd have uh, plays, they'd have uh, portray a story through, through their acting. And what's curious about this time in, in history is that the way they would portray their, their emotions was through masks. And so what would happen is if a play was supposed to show a, a sad situation, uh, these actors would have masks in the, in behind them and they would turn around, put a sad face, a sad mask on, and then they would turn around and show the public this sad face. Once that, that, that sad situation was over, they'd turn back around 
and show an angry face, and so on and so on. And the point was, they would never show their actual real faces. In fact, it was very unprofessional and looked down upon for them to show their real face as they're uh, presenting this, this play. Well, the name for these actors was, was hypocrites. And we know now what a hypocrite is, right? It's someone that doesn't show their real face, someone that's not genuine. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we start out with, with this. It says, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and I'm reading from uh, a Legacy Bible, and if you have an ESV, it will be, uh, let love be genuine. This word actually is what we know as now the word hypocrite. And, and, and what it says is, let love be without hypocrisy. So we're going to look at six things today, the first one being that our duty towards others is to love without hypocrisy. Now Romans is just an amazing book, and uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans talk, tell us about the doctrine, it, it teaches, that, teaches us that all of us are sinners, that uh, God is manifested through creation. Uh, it shows us that we are without excuse, that our sin separates us from God, that the penalty for our sin is death. And so Paul in the book of Romans is expounding and showing us not only our state, but he's also showing us in these 11 chapters the mercies of God, how we have redemption, how we have the ability to call him Father, how we are adopted as sons in his family, and now we have an inheritance with him. So by the time chapter 12 comes around, uh, in verse 1, it says, looking back upon these mercies of God, now there's a duty that we have to do. There's a response that we're called to have, looking back and recognizing, acknowledging the mercies of God. Um, in verses uh, 3 to 9, it talks about our responsibility towards the church, about using our gifts. And verse 9 through 12 is talking about our duty towards others. And the following uh, verses talk about our responsibility towards the government, towards authority. So we could say that uh, the chapters before chapter 12 talk about doctrine, and then the other remaining chapters talk about how we put that into practice. Verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 12 was probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible, where it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So there is a response, there's a response that we must have in which we present our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice in gratitude for his mercies that have been shown to us. So that's why when we come to verse 9, our first responsibility, our duty towards others, looking back at his mercy on us, 
is to love others without hypocrisy. This love is, a call, is called an agape love. And if you're, you know about this agape love, it's the kind of love that God the Father has for his son. It's the kind of love that God has towards men, and we are called to love in this kind of love without hypocrisy. In other words, our love must be genuine. Genuine. Now, last, I'd like to ask you to turn your Bibles for a moment with me in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. Some time ago, I heard a story, and you've probably heard it too, about the Yahweh tribe in Indonesia in the 1950s. Now, what's interesting about the Yahweh tribe in Indonesia in 1950 is that this missionary whose name was Don Henderson, he went to this tribe to, to uh, give them the gospel. And this Yahweh tribe, they were, they were cannibals. And you know what cannibal is, right? You don't want to be in a situation where you have to confront a cannibalistic tribe. But this brave missionary went in the 1950s, and he started to learn the language. He started to uh, interact and befriend them. And when he was capable enough with the language, he gave them the gospel. And as he's telling the story about the birth of Jesus and going through his ministry, and he comes closer to the crucifixion, there came a day when he started, when he told him about the story about Judas. And to surprise, when he's telling them about how Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, all the tribes, there were three tribes there, started hooping and hollering and, and, and shouting out, for, for joy. He says, what's going on? You see, in the Yahweh tribe, treason was a virtue for them. And in the gospel, Jesus was not the hero, it was Judas. And I tell you this story because in Galatians chapter 4, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is it? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says, goes on to say, but if you bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, if we don't learn as believers to love without hypocrisy, then we are in danger of committing spiritual cannibalism. It says, be careful lest you devour, consume one another. Isn't that sometimes what happens in the unbelieving world with people that are not Christians? Uh, when something doesn't go right the way they want to, they start devouring one another, consuming one another, and it can destroy not only our families, but it can destroy the church. Now here's a question. How do I love without hypocrisy? How can I love genuinely? Going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, the second part of that verse hints at how we can love genuinely. And it says, let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring, or in other words, hating what is evil and clinging 
to what is good. We look back at verses 1 and 2, it says, gives us our motivation, but now we look at how we're supposed to love without hypocrisy, and it says we have to learn to hate evil. We have to learn to hate evil. That's the first step. If we look at Psalms chapter 101, verse 3 to 5, Psalm chapter 101, verse 3 to to 5, it says this, I will set no vile thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Notice it says cling, right? We're supposed to cling to what is good. And it says evil is not going to cling to me. It says a crooked heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look, or prideful look, an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So we have an example here from from the, the psalmist. He hates evil. He hates evil. Psalm 97, 97.10 says, hate evil. I hate evil. And so the, the point is, uh, brothers and sisters, is if we want to be loved without hypocrisy, we must hate, learn to hate, Lies. We must learn to hate slander. And we know what slander is, is, is to uh, offer remarks or declarations about a brother which destroy him, which defame him. We are also, we're also supposed to hate a pride and a crooked heart. We're supposed to hate what is evil, and it says we're supposed to love what is good, cling to what is good. You know what's interesting about this word cling? It's the same word used in Matthew 19:5 that talks about the union that is supposed to happen between a man and a wife. We're supposed to cling to what is good, like a man clings to his wife as united in marriage. The question is, what is our response? How do we what, do, what happens in our hearts? What, what do we feel when you're in a situation where maybe it's a co-workers, maybe it's your family, maybe it's with other brothers and sisters? What happens in your heart and your mind when you hear uh, slander, when you hear lies, when you hear someone tearing down another brother and sister in Christ? How about when you hear uh, that about your elders, about your pastor? We're supposed to hate evil and love, cling to what is good. And once we do that, then we are free to love genuinely without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring evil, by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. So we found, we've talked about what love is not supposed to be like. So what is love supposed to be like? How are we supposed to love? It says in verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. 
So instead of uh, loving with uh, hypocritically, we're supposed to have a brotherly kind of love. This love is a filial love, a love between parents and children, husbands and wives. So think with me for a second. It says we're supposed to have this kind of love to, to our brothers and sisters. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you consciously slander your wife, your spouse? Would you consciously do something or say something to tear down your children? No, right? This is the kind of love we're supposed to have between brothers and sisters. And the way that it looks like, it says preferring one another in honor, valuing or pricing one another above yourself. You know, I never, I never really understood this until I got married. I thought I, I was someone that was selfish, but no. I thought that I was good at asking forgiveness. No. See, marriage brings out the bad in you, but also gives you an opportunity to do good. The believer who is living in daily sacrifice to the Lord not only loves without hypocrisy, loves fraternally, but is also diligent in his service. Verse 11 says, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, as I was studying this, and, you know, it seems like there's, it's all these, these, a list of things to do, right? But when you take a closer look, it actually all comes together. You know, the first, our first duty is to love others genuinely, and our second duty is to be diligent in our service. Another way that we could phrase this, this verse is, in anything that requires diligence, anything, not lagging behind, being fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. You know, any task, any task, whether it be uh, at your work, whether it be at home, you know, sometimes my wife says, and my wife has, a, when you get to know her, she's very brave. You know, she left Costa Rica to come to Bolivia, um, and she, she, she has handled snakes, she has handled spiders, she's not afraid of anything except cockroaches. She is terrified of cockroaches. And sometimes my, my wife would say, Honey, would you go outside and just make sure there's no cockroaches? You know, at, at our home, we have a courtyard. Uh, it's an open courtyard in the, in the middle. It's a Spanish kind of home. So in order for us to go from the bedroom to the bathroom or the bathroom to the bedroom, we have to go through outside. Sometimes I don't feel like it. It's cold. Sometimes I just want to stay in bed. It says, in any task which is required of you, it says, do it with diligence, not lagging behind, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. See, when I serve my wife, I'm serving the Lord. When my wife asks me to do something, if I do love her, when I love her, and we know that love is the greatest of virtues, so this also falls into the category of loving without hypocrisy. 
So if I love her, I will, any task which is required of me, I will, I will um, do it with my attention, not lagging behind, not waiting last minute. You know, I'll, I'll wait until she's finally going to sleep to then do what she asked me to do. It talks about your service at your work. Talks about your service at church. And it says here, fervent in spirit. This, this word fervent talks about um, boiling something, putting something under the fire. That's, that's the imagery that, that Paul gives his readers as he uses this word. And what it means is doing things with passion and effort. When I step on a cockroach, I do it with passion. With passion, with effort, with fervor. And I want to remind you, brothers, in Colossians chapter 3, if you'd go with me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. It's a good reminder for us that whatever you do, that's what it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So children, those who are still in school, did you know that when you do your homework, when you pay attention in class, or when you do chores in your house, it's a way that you're serving the Lord? Did you know that? It is. And we're called to do it with passion, not waiting last minute to do things, but doing when we are told. Because that's how we serve the Lord, and that's how you show love to your parents, is by obeying them. The believer who is diligent in his service, serving the Lord, is, let me... Let me hold on. The believer who is living in obedience to the Lord will demonstrate his love towards others by taking great care and effort to do any task given to him, knowing he is ultimately pleasing the Lord. So the question is, how would my performance and my job change if I understood that truth? How would my performance at school change? How would my... Uh, service to the Lord at church change. The third point that we have here has to do with our duty in view of others. We've looked at our duty towards others, but the third one is our duty in view of others. What that means is, brothers and sisters, people are watching us. People are watching us. Your friends and family that are unsaved are watching you. They look at how you react at affliction, at tribulation. When the tire is flat, they see how you respond, whether in anger. What's, what we see here in verse 12, it says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. I think that we all understand 
that we live in times of great affliction and great tribulation. Just a couple of years ago, it seems like just yesterday, that we were all affected by this terrible pandemic. In Bolivia, we've been uh, having to deal with political, civil unrest, violence, uh, government attempts to, to throw the government down. Then we hear about natural disasters, people uh, being killed by floods all over the world. And now we have the threat of, of world war and people suffering across the ocean in Russia and Ukraine. The question then is, what has our response been to the afflictions in the world? And more specifically, more practically, what is your response, dear brothers and sisters, when affliction, when disease, when tribulation comes into your life? Maybe the question is, what is afflicting your heart today? The Lord asks us here, tells us in verse 12, that we can rejoice in hope. We can persevere in affliction. I want that. I want to be able to say, Lord, I rejoice and I, I persevere in tribulation. This uh, word persevere talks about outlasting, talks about suffering patiently. And you know, in Bolivia, one, and, and I would say in South America, one of the, the biggest threats to sound doctrine is the, the false teaching of health, wealth, and prosperity. That a believer is not supposed to suffer. That a believer is not supposed to, to have needs and, 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 and affliction. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. When we see here in the Bible, it says persevere in affliction. It tells us two things. It lets us know that suffering is very much part of the believer's life. We're not supposed to be surprised by it, shocked by it. But we must understand that suffering is a part of this life. And second of all, the second point that we learn from this is that the Lord may or may not deliver us from that suffering. That's why we are called to persevere. And the reason why we can persevere is because we rejoice in hope. See, if you could go with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. And if you would pay attention to, to these three verses, we'll find where our rejoicing is. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort which, 
which we ourselves uncomforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is Christ. That's why we can rejoice in hope. And this hope is something that we have that cannot be taken away. That's why uh, Paul spends 12 chapters talking about that, that hope. And that's what helps us during tribulation to rejoice is that our hope is in Christ. You see, if, if our hope is in things, when we look at what's going on, if our hope is in our health, in our, in our wealth, and as I was coming down from, uh, well, coming up from Los Angeles to San Francisco, as we were returning from the conference, I remember talking to, to Albert and said, wow, California is, is big. You have all these, these farmlands. And, and I mentioned to him how amazing and powerful and great the United States is. But if our hope is in, in that, if our hope is in an, a nation and a government, in our hands, then we will be uh, discouraged. We will be let down. But if our hope is in Christ, then nothing can take our hope away. Nothing can take our rejoicing away because our hope is in Christ. As we go back to Romans, verse 12, it says, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, and it says being devoted to prayer. It means being constant. It means being steadfast. How is our prayer life? How can we expect to be firm in the faith if we are not men and women of prayer? There's something that I'd like to share with you, and it's in regards to, to our prayer uh, for, our, for our family. You know, I have a little girl. She is one year and seven months. She's growing way too fast. It just seemed yesterday when she was born. And we pray every night that God would one day raise her up, a godly woman, that knows the Lord. Are you praying for your family that way? Maybe your kids are, are small, but start praying for them now. Just something I want to share with you. Our hope is in Christ, and because our hope is in Christ, we can pray, and we can devote ourselves to prayer, knowing that constant, steadfast prayer is what he wants from us. And verse 13 talks about, it seems also that it's, it might be distant, it might, de, might be different, might be almost as an afterthought. Because then it says, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. But let me tell you this, how can we meet the, need, how can we meet the needs of others if we ourselves are not grounded in hope? We can't. This word contrib contributing is the word that we know of today as communion. 
It's about fellowship. It's about sharing what is ours. And I think I prefer that word of, oh, above contribute. And then it says pursuing hospitality. And when you think about the word pursue, you think about running after, right? Chasing something down. We are called to run after, literally, hospitality. So let me share with you this. We don't need to be free of afflictions to practice hospitality. And we see that in the church, in the early church, uh, churches that brothers that didn't have much, had very little, they still went above and beyond to meet the needs of Paul in other churches. You see, we don't have to wait until we ourselves are free of affliction and tribulation to practice hospitality. We are called to practice hospitality even while we're suffering, even while we are in need. I also don't need to have an abundance of things to share with those that are in need. We are called to pursue, to run after hospitality, contributing, sharing with, uh, with other saints. So we've looked so far, brothers, at, at three things uh, that the, the believer who has presented himself towards God as a living sacrifice, the believer who says, I, I, I'm living obediently for the Lord, first of all, is someone who loves genuinely. Second of all, is someone who is diligent in, in his service, whatever it is. And third of all, it's a believer who is joyful in tribulation. How, how does that match up with us so far? Let me tell you, it gets worse. In verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Think about it for a second. It says, bless those who persecute you. You know, bless is not just something you say after someone sneezes. This word bless is not just speaking well of, but it's also asking God to provide and protect for them. Saying, what are you talking about? We're supposed to ask that God bless our enemies? Yes. That's what it says. Those who persecute, those who, who persist in causing you affliction. Have you ever experienced that before? Those who are intent on robbing your peace. Those who are intent on taking your life. But before we think far away into, into the worst of situations, think about your fellow co-workers. Think about your boss, your schoolmates, that bully in school. How about other believers? And in case we didn't hear it the first time, Paul repeats it again. It says, bless and do not curse. He says it twice. You see, what is, what is natural for us when, when we hear that, that negative remark, when we receive that offense, when we receive that insult, when our spouse says something in a, in a way that you didn't like, 
when that comes up, our first natural response is to respond with a harsher word. Respond in anger. But it says, bless those who persecute you. And it says, it repeats again, bless and do not curse. And it's interesting because in these verses, it's Paul takes up more time talking about this. If we jump over to verse 17, he goes back to this, to this point, and he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved, Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord calls us not just to not do anything. He just He's not asking us to just put our hands down and sit and play with the thumbs, he tells us, respond in kindness to the evildoer. In verse 16, before before telling us not to repay back evil evil to evil for anyone, it says, do not be wise in your own mind. This is like saying, do you think you know better? At that time when we're offended, we we think that the right situation is to respond back in anger, right? So we do. Two years ago, uh, at home, we had a we had a break in a person break in to our house. Uh, we had just recently gotten uh, uh, what do you call the machine that turns around and slices up your vegetables. Blender, we just got a new blender. We had a we we bought a DVD to watch movies with my wife. Uh, we had a little orange um, to make orange juice. Um, we had a, a crock pot that my wife had gotten from her father when we got married. So whoever broke into our house came came in and took all these things. Obviously, we were we were saddened. I, I saw my wife crying. She was tears in her eyes. I said, honey, it's okay. It's just things. And praise the Lord, we're okay. We didn't get hurt. And she was crying. You know, I was trying to comfort her. But in my heart, I was angry. I was angry. I found out that whoever broke into our home had jumped on, we have this... Uh, this machine that pumps water when there is when the when there is no water, and the 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 roof of it is just with simple tiles. And whoever broke in had jumped on it and broken the tile, so I knew it came from up from from the roof. A couple of days later, I was walking past, coming back home, and among one of the, among the things that was stolen from our house were our our bicycle tires. So as I'm walking, walking, uh, reaching home, I noticed that the neighbor's kid had 
his bicycle out. I look over and I said, well, those tires look familiar. Sure enough, they were my tires. At that moment, I remembered my wife. I didn't particularly care about those things. But I was angry with him for doing that to my wife, for invading the privacy of our home. He was our neighbor. So what happened was, each day after that, whenever I'd get ready to go out, I'd think about him. I didn't want to see him. If I saw him, I hated him in my heart. You see, it says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. Now, I know that sounds trivial in the day and age which we live in, with all the violence that's going on all over the world. And what we see in verse 18 shows us that sometimes it's not possible to fix everything. We don't know if, if Russia is going to stop its violence against Ukraine. It says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I didn't expect uh, our neighbor to give our things back. I didn't have to wait for him to do that in order to be okay with him. But I learned and I realized that my heart was, was suffering because of the hatred that I had for him. And one day I realized that I was being disobedient to God and so I prayed and I said, Lord, I have this in my heart. Please take it away. And help me to love him like you see him. The next day, I was getting ready to go out, and I saw him, and I said, Hello, Christian, how are you? I was like, what, what just happened? And then I realized that all that was in my heart was gone. You see, we think we know better. Sometimes we think we, we, we must respond to our spouse the same way that he or she talked to me. The other thing that we see here in the Bible is that God is just, and in his time, he will bring judgment to the injustice. It says here in verse 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, sometimes when, when it, things are not going get, to get fixed, when there is no solution, the only thing that we have left to do is leave it in the hands of God. Leave it in the hands of God. And I want to share with you two truths about this, about leaving, leaving things in the hand of God. For the first, as, as we said, it's sometimes we, we won't be able to fix things. That's why it says, if, it, if at all possible, be at peace with all men. And the second one is God is a just God, and he'll bring judgment, he'll bring justice in his time. So we must rest on that. And once we rest on that, it's, 
we are free to show mercy towards our enemies. As we look on verse 15, verse 15 in Romans chapter 12, we find an exhortation. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You know what this is called? It's called empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. It's to put yourself in someone's shoes. That's something that I get from my wife a lot. She says, you need to put yourself in my shoes. It's a good thing to learn to have uh, regard for my wife. You know, she, uh, she's, like I said, she's very brave. She went, she, traveled, she left Costa Rica. It's where she's from to live in Bolivia. And I don't understand sometimes how, what it is that she has, she has had to sacrifice in order to be in the ministry with, with me. And empathy, brothers and sisters, is a Christ-like trait. It's a, it's a trait that Christ had. If you look with me in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 36, Matthew chapter 9, Verses 35 and 36. We see here that Jesus was empathetic. And it says here in verse 35 that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. He was teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus had compassion on them. It says, what this literally means is moved from within the bowels. You know, back in, the, back in that day when uh, a guy liked a girl, he would say, I love you with all my intestines. That's the way he said it. It was romantic back then. Not anymore. But what, 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 it's, what it's meaning is, and it doesn't do justice in English, right? It, says, it just says Jesus had compassion. But what it really means is he was moved with compassion from deep within. Jesus was empathetic. It is a deep, intense feeling that recognizes a great spiritual need. It says, he was moved with compassion towards them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So once we realize that, that the lost people in this world are just as astray and just as rebellious as we were, then we can have compassion on them like Jesus did. Also in John Chapter 11, verse 30 and 35. We see here the story about Lazarus. And look with me, if you will, in John chapter 11, verse 30. It says that when Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him, then the Jews 
who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to cry there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And listen to this. and says, When Jesus therefore saw her crying, and the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. See, Jesus was empathetic. He felt the needs of others. And we are called as believers to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And I just want to share with you a little exercise we can do to practice more empathy. I want you to think of someone, if you all would, think of someone who is important to you. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your father, your mother. Once you have that, that person in mind, uh, I'll ask, ask you to think about what their emotional state has been recently. Have they been, have they been joyful? Have they been sad? Have they been worried? Are they anxious? And the third question is, what has occurred in that person's life that has brought them to this point? What has caused them this sadness or this, this worry? And fourth, how are you contributing to his or her emotional state? Or maybe how are you not contributing to their emotional state. Are you making things worse? Are you making things better? And what can you do, number five, what can you do in order to alleviate that person's situation? With my wife, it's very easy. Just buy her ice cream. Doesn't matter what's going on, I buy her ice cream that already makes her day. What kind of things do you recognize? What kind of things can you do to be empathetic to that loved one. Sometimes it's just sitting with them, listening to them, talking to them. Sometimes it's just saying these magical words, I, I see what you're going through. I, I'm, I'm there. And lastly, the, the sixth trait or the sixth point of how we are supposed to respond towards others is by displaying humility. It says in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the humble. Be of one mind doesn't mean that everyone is going to like red curtains. Everyone is going to agree on the color of the carpet. It's not what it means. But be of one be of one mind means that we are in communion despite our different backgrounds, despite our different education, our race, or our social status. And the great enemy of communion amongst believers is pride. It's the biggest enemy towards communion is pride. Pride, you see, pride makes us say, I will not associate, I will not... Uh, associate with, this, with, with these people, but I will with them. I will be nice and cordial to these people, 
but not to them. So we're reminded about this verse in 16 that says, do not be wise in your own mind. Do you think you know better? Who are we? And as we look upon these traits that we've, that we've talked about, we think about Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of his humility. We see his empathy. We, we recognize how he patiently endured tribulation. God, who was always God, for the first time suffered hunger, suffered thirst, suffered disappointment. And he was faithful and diligent to carry out his father's work despite that every, every day. And then we, we think upon Jesus, how he poured out towards, uh, towards us his love without hypocrisy. And to his enemies, he showed mercy. So when we look upon these traits, we realize that what these traits are, are Christ-likeness. See, you see, Christ-likeness is our duty. It's our duty towards others, is to be like Christ. But you know, we can't be like Christ if we haven't been born again yet. We can't be Christ-like if he hasn't got a hold of your heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, if we recognize that these are things that, that I need in my life, first of all, we must recognize that if you're not a believer, the first step, the first step is to give our hearts to Christ as our Savior. The second is for us believers to recognize that this is our duty towards others in response to God's mercies in our life. I'd like to ask you to bow our heads and close our eyes. We're going to finish in a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you this morning recognizing that there are things in our life that are not pleasing to you, but we recognize that we have a duty towards others to be Christ-like. Father, forgive us for not showing that at times in our home, in our work, in our schools. Father, help us to have that heart in us that is Christ-like. Pray for my brothers and sisters that you would apply the word of God into their hearts. And as we think upon these things, Lord, give us courage, give us wisdom uh, this week as we, as we navigate the tribulations in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.